Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. And welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you would like to send me an email, as you have been doing for the last 29 years, it's w it's uh, Exxon at ExxonRadioTV.com. That's Exxon at ExxonRadioTV.com. And for all the programming that we have available for you 24-7, 365 on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. And to find out what is playing on the X-Zone TV channel, all you need to do is go to www.simultv.com, and we are Channel 20. Exxon Nation, my guest this hour is a gentleman I have had the pleasure of having on the show many times in the past. His name is Ralph Ellis. And Ralph has been researching the history of religion and the megalithic era for more than 40 years and has brought many lost tribes back to life. His eight books on revisionary theology claim to have rediscovered and identified all of the Old and New Testament events and characters within real history, with most of that uh, history being in past Egypt, however. Uh, Ralph's first book explored the hinges of Britain and pyramids of Egypt and came to some equally unique and compelling conclusion. Now, Ralph claims that the megalithic monuments encode astronomical and cartographical information within their designs, which not only demonstrate the ancients had a great deal of technical knowledge, but also provides us with a megalithic maps of Earth. However, the precise meaning and importance of those ancient maps is still unknown. 
for all the information that you will ever need on this very interesting and fascinating man. His website is edfu-books.uk. And Ralph, welcome back to the X-Zone. Thanks very much for having me on again, uh, Rob. Very nice to be here. It's always a pleasure having you on. You are a very interesting person. Um, you know, I, I think of the many times you've been on over the years, and it's like, wow, every time you're on, you bring something new and exciting, yet it's not part of anything new. It's how we perceive the way that yes. that history actually happened. And I think one of, a, one of the most uh, interesting and mythical, if I can use that, that phrase, that you and I have talked about in the past, is King Arthur. And apparently he was a real historical character. Yes, uh, if you read the text critically, and actually, hmm, yeah, you have to look very deeply into the text to find out who he is, because superficially he does not exist, because he is missing from the historical record for 600 years, you know, he's supposed to be a 5th, 6th century character, right? and he's missed by all of the uh, early uh, authors um, like Gildas, Bede, Nennius, you know, he just does not exist in the early record. And then he suddenly pops up in 1135 with Geoffrey of Monmouth and Walter of Oxford, who suddenly produced the whole history of King Arthur. Now, how, so come, he, how the, come he was missed all those years? Yeah, it's, it's good, isn't it? And why don't authors modern authors actually point this out, you know, that the historical yeah. Arthur does not exist in the historical record for 600 years. And suddenly he comes along uh, during the medieval period as a fully fledged story and king and royal court and all of the story we know about King Arthur. Well, um, how different so, from the real Arthur is the... Uh, the Arthur this that we new are, Arthur, yeah. yes, this new Arthur is quite different because um, the uh, we have the story by Monmouth and Oxford, which is the standard story we know. Mm -hmm. But then we have all of these new stories that were written just shortly after this period, uh, including the Vulgate cycle, which tell us a very different story about King Arthur, one that is not actually highlighted by any of the films you see, you know, in, in Hollywood or anything of that nature. Uh, and they say very heretical things. I mean, one of them says that, you know, King Arthur was the most evil king ever born. Uh, and, uh, you know, that sort of gets things going a little bit. And then we have several of these manuscripts, uh, mostly within the Vulgate cycle, but also within high history. And Vulgate cycle is this enormous great corpus of uh, Arthurian history, about you know 3,500 pages worth in modern close typing. Um, and that seems to say that the history was written by Josephus Flavius. Now, that's a problem because Josephus Flavius was a first century historian who wrote the whole history of, of uh, Judea and the Near East. Um, he, is, he is the companion, as it were, to the biblical story. He writes the same story as, as the biblical gospels. Um, now, that's a problem. And, and uh, people have looked at this and, and um, you know, venerable historians like uh, William Neitz, who's... Mm -hmm. uh, the, the father of uh, uh, Arthurian research, really, back in the 19th century, uh, said that, um, well, this is obviously a mistake, you know, because um, 
Josephus Flavius cannot be writing about King Arthur, who's supposed to live in the fifth or sixth century. Um, so we have this huge conundrums within this story that we think we know. And the other big conundrum we have is, is it's not a British story. It's not? It, no, no it's, it's quite, quite funny. And, and again, it's, this is not highlighted in, in any of the histories that you will normally read. Um, the history we, we have from uh, Monmouth and Oxford, um, that actually came out of northern France. It came out of Normandy. Um, and it was translated into Welsh later, but it was, uh, it, it was written in Breton mm -hmm. and it was translated into uh, Latin and then translated into Welsh much later. Uh, the other stories that come out are from Italy, from Greece, uh, from Germany, from Holland, from, uh, Gre uh, from Scandinavia. Um, they come from all over Europe, these stories, stories of uh, their Arthur, sometimes reworked into local history, but he's you know, definitely a King Arthur person. So we have things like um, Roman and Fergus, which is the Scottish version. We have Florent and Florette, who's the Italian version. He's buried in Mount Etna somewhere, apparently. Um, so this is not really a British story. The first sculpture we have of King Arthur is on the doors of Modena Cathedral in Italy. And that's from the 12th century. We, we don't get a British story of King Arthur until we get down to um, Thomas Mallory, I suppose, and his Mort d'Arthur, which is a very late manuscript. So we have two problems so far. We have a, a King Arthur who, who goes missing for 600 years, and then he appears to be a European hero, not uh, a British hero. Um, and perhaps the reason why all this happened is... is uh, we can see it by the date when it arrived. It arrived in 1135. That's just after the First Crusade. First Crusade went right. out in, you know, 1096. Um, and the First Crusade actually did something odd. It, it was led by um, uh, Baldwin, Count Baldwin of Boulogne. And it didn't go to Jerusalem. Where did it go? It went to Edessa. Uh, for some strange reason, they carried straight on. They didn't turn right and go down to Jerusalem when they were going through uh, modern Turkey. They carried straight on and they went over the Euphrates and they ended up in Edessa. And the first city to be liberated from Muslim control was Edessa. And that's odd because I'd already written about this. We've talked about yes, this previously have, yeah. in one of my previous books where I said that Jesus was the king of Edessa. Right. And very strangely, the first city that was liberated by the uh, crusaders uh, was Edessa and it, that begs the question if they knew something about the history of Jesus the, the true history of Jesus the historical Jesus um, but anyway so they did so mm -hmm. they then set up the Knights Templar and five years after the uh, Knights Templar were set up we suddenly get the Arthurian legend comes out of northern France, which is where uh, Count Baldwin uh, of Boulogne came from, of course. He was a, uh, a Norman uh, count. So the story arrives, and it seems to be linked to the Crusades. 
All right, Ralph, let's hold it here because I have to take a commercial break, and this is getting very interesting, as every hour does with you. Thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations on all the great work that you've done over the years, my friend. It's always a great pleasure having you with us here in the X-Zone. And X-Zone Nation, if you'd like to find out more about our guest this hour, Ralph Ellis, his website is www.edfu-books.uk. That's www.edfu-books.uk. And uh, Ralph and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forest Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome back. Ralph Ellis is our special guest at this hour, www.edfu-books.uk. And Ralph, uh, when you and I, you know, before we took the last commercial break, we were talking about how the Knights Templar did not turn right and go to Jerusalem, but they kept on going across the, across the <laughs> Euphrates to Odessa. Yes. And this brings in, uh, you know, a couple of conversations that we've had in the past why did they go to Odessa first instead of instead of going to Jerusalem? Uh, I think that there is uh, a genealogy here that, that that goes through the biblical genealogy down into Europe. I okay. think that uh, uh, Count Baldwin of Boulogne, who mm. became uh, you know one of the first kings of of Jerusalem, knew something about this era. But of course, this region had been beyond the reach of any Western Christian for hundreds of years, ever since uh, the um, Muslims' invasions in the uh, 7th century, which had cut off that region from uh, from Western exploration, from right. anything in the West. And so nobody in the West knew what might be there in the East if they actually went there. And the Crusades gave them the first opportunity to go and have a look. So I think they had some ancient history that, that told them that there was something special in that region because, as I said before, my research said that Jesus was a king of Edessa. So they went specifically not to um, liberate Jerusalem, but to go and find something interesting at the very core of this uh, religion, which was Edessa. And Edessa, even if you don't believe the uh, Jesus connection, was mm -hmm. the first city that uh, adopted uh, Christianity back in the second century. Well, let's talk about um, the Jesus connection, because that plays a very pivotal part in Christianity. 
Ah, yes, yes. But how did they know? There, there must have been some, because they've been cut off from uh, mm -hmm. that part of the world for 500 years. Um, how did they know? They must have had some inkling that there was something to find. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone to such a strange place as the desert, which is miles away between the uh, Euphrates and the Tigris. Um, and that was the first city they liberated. And it is un undoubtedly that they found something mm, important because that's why they set up the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar were obviously set up to mm, to hold and keep uh, secrets that had been uh, liberated from the east, and nobody, of course, knows what those secrets are. Everyone says, "Oh, yes, the, you know, the Templars must have had secrets. That's why they had all their initiation codes. That's why you had to, you know, such a secretive society." Um, but what secrets did they have? Well, if they had been to Odessa and they had found the history of the kings of Odessa, mm -hmm. and they had linked that history of the kings of Odessa to the biblical story, as I have done and found that Jesus was a king of Edessa, a secular, normal king of Edessa. Uh, that would have been very explosive information uh, because it, it contradicts very a lot of what is said in the gospel story. You know, mm -hmm. it, it makes Jesus into a, a real warrior monarch uh, who had this small um, principality in northern Syria, which eventually took over um, pretty much most of Syria, all the way down through Palmyra. And then his son, who was called King Esus, uh, became the king of uh, Judea. So again, it fits in very well with the gospel story. Um, but however, that would be very heretical to the Catholic Church to have, you know, Jesus as a secular king ruling over Edessa. Um, who has a, well, a slightly different history to how the gospel story portrays it. Um, the, the gospel story is the same story, but covered in fairy dust, basically. Do you think they, that they, that is the reason why the, the, the Hebrews do not include the New Testament in their, in their belief system? Oh, yes, because, I mean, he was... <sighs> He, he was fighting against the Jews, this, right. this particular king, King Jesus. Um, he was trying to become the king of the Jews. He was actually said to be the king of the Jews. Uh, that was his formal title within the Gospels. Uh, but of course, initially, he was just the king of the Nazarene Jews, which was a small sect of Judaism. And they were trying to take over the whole of Judea and the whole of Judaism so he could become the whole, um, the king of the whole of Judea. Um, and this was also linked into the Jewish revolt. So they were actually trying to not overtake over Syria and Judea, but they wanted him to become the emperor of Rome as well. Uh, so this was a, a huge uh, tumultuous era within Roman Empire where these Eastern monarchs tried to take over the Ro Roman Empire and become the new emperors to control the whole of the known world, as it were. Um, but they failed. Uh, and the Romans won, of course, and Judea was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the kingdom of Edessa shrunk all the way back to Edessa. And it wasn't actually destroyed at that point. Palmyra was destroyed, but uh, um, um, Edessa was not. But, it, you know, the... the the whole of that monarchy shrunk back to Edessa and they ruled for another 200 years or so. Mm. But then they became cut off from the 
Eastern Roman Empire through the Council of Chalcedon, which split the Christian church, basically. And so they ended up on the eastern side of, of the division of the Council of Chalcedon. And then they ended up on the eastern side of the division caused by Islam when Islam steamrolled through the region. And so Edessa was completely cut off from uh, from Western civilization, from the Western um, Roman Byzantine Empire. Um, and so nobody knew what secrets were held within Edessa. And I think there were a lot of secrets held in Edessa. And the Arthurian story was one of those secrets, which is why you get these very, very strange Arthurian texts, um, like uh, Parsifal, the one written by uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach. I mean, it's a well-known uh, Arthurian manuscript. And yet it starts its story because, you know, this is the story of King Arthur. So where does it start its story? It starts his story in Mesopotamia, where the father of Percival, who's one of the big heroes of Arthurian legend, was a knight and then a king of Mesopotamia. Who He was a knight of King Barus, who I equate with the Edessan king, who was King Agbarus. He has the same name. So we, we have these very strange manuscripts which don't exactly conform to what we think of, you know, normal Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. Most of the story within the Vulgate cycle, this huge great corpus of Arthurian legend, is about Joseph of Arimathea. Well, wasn't he, according to, uh, from what I, what I remember talking to you in the past, but wasn't he the person who went to the Romans and had them take the body of Jesus Christ down? And put in his in, yes, into according his, uh, to crib. the Gospels, right. yes, of course. Uh, but according to Arthurian legend, um, Joseph of Arimathea was working for the Romans. Hmm. He was the one who sold out Jesus to the Romans, and not Judas. Yeah, completely the opposite. Wow. You know, G Judas was innocent. You know, he was <laughs> he was framed. Yeah, Arthurian legend. I mean, this is hugely heretical. I'm surprised they got away with that actually. Um, for Arthurian legend to say that the baddie uh, was Joseph of Arimathea, mm -hmm. that he had been working for the Romans for seven years, and he was the one who um, managed to get Jesus uh, captured by the Romans. Well, if that is um, the case, if that is the case, Ralph, if my memory serves me correct, it is also believed that Joseph of Arimathea brought Mary Magdalene and the Holy Grail to the British Isles. Yes, um, we have this whole story yeah. of Joseph of Arimathea uh, coming to Britain, but the, there is a, a mistake there in the translation as well. Okay. And I identify all of these mistakes because and they're sort of deliberate mistakes. I'm sure some people have seen this because they say um, that they went to Galles, mm -hmm. is what it says. And then it says that uh, Sir Galahad became the king of Hoselis. And Galles and Hoselis are supposed to refer to Wales, that they went to Wales, obviously Britain. But they didn't. You see, Galles refers to the Galli high priests of Syria. And Hoselis also refers to the Galli high priests of Syria. And the Galli, the Galileans, as they're called by Josephus Flavius, mm -hmm. were eunuch priests of Sibel who honored Attis, Attis and Sibel, who were very influential in, in, in Syria. And they were all eunuchs. And Hoselis uh, and the, the, the galley both mean eunuch. 
because the priests were always eunuchs. And that is why we get um, Jesus asking his uh, disciples to become eunuchs. Again, this is not widely known because they don't want to uh, tell you about this. But Jesus says in the Gospels, this is comes from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. He says, um, there are some eunuchs which are born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs by men. But there are some eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive this, let him receive it. So, and this, this is uh, Matthew 19, 11. Um, so what Jesus is saying is that if you want to become a eunuch, i.e. you want to become a galley priest, right. then you should become a eunuch because uh, the galley priests are the priests who look after the Holy Grail, according to Arthurian legend. And his disciples were galley priests. All right, stand by, Ralph. We've got to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Fascinating hour, as every hour is, with our guest, Ralph Ellis. For more information on Ralph, or if you'd like to buy any of his great books, and they certainly are great, I've had the pleasure of reading most of them, visit his website at edfu-books.uk. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. Ralph Ellis and I return after this news break. Don't go away. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors. About bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forest Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome back, Exxon Nation. Uh, Ralph Ellis is our special guest this hour, www.edfu-books.uk is his website. And um, Ralph, you've got me a little uh, <laughs> It's mesmerized. all confusing, isn't well, it? <laughs> it is, but when you start having had the pleasure of talking to you in the past, the pieces are starting to fall into place. Yes. And the you know, and I agree with you. This this certainly would uh, get those believers to uh, to shake their head and you know go after you and uh, say no, 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 you're wrong. But it it makes sense. But let me ask you this then: the Holy Land is the Holy Land Israel, or is the Holy Land actually Syria? Uh, well, both, I suppose, because uh, they took over Edessa initially. They they came out of um, Persia. They were Egyptians who had been exiled to Persia. They were kicked out of Persia. They ended up in Edessa. They set up their own um, monarchy there, their mm -hmm. small kingdom. Uh, they took over most of northern Syria, uh, all the way down to Palmyra. Palmyra was a big city of, of the um, uh, this Edessan monarchy. And then, of course, they wanted to expand. 
And how do you expand? Well, they wanted to go south and take over Judea. How do you do that? Well, either you go down there with an army, which they didn't want to do because the Romans controlled that region anyway. Right. Um, or you send your sons down as princes of Judaism because the princes of Edessa were Jews. They were Nazarene Jews mm-hmm. um, with pots of money. And you sell yourself as the savior of the region. So, for instance, in uh, AD 47, they saved Judea from famine by putting a lot of money down into Judea. Mm-hmm. So they were the saviors of Judea. Through on the back of that, they then set up the largest palace in Jerusalem and the largest tomb in uh, in Jerusalem, and they bought all of the furniture for the Temple of Jerusalem. So that magnificent great gold menorah that the Romans stole eventually in AD 70, that was given by the Edessan monarchy to the Temple of Jerusalem. So by these acts of uh, generosity to Judea, their sons were slowly becoming the de facto princes of Judea. And their mother, who's Queen Helena, she's the very famous Queen Helena, she became the queen of Judea in the AD 40s, AD 50s. Again, that's not really highlighted very much because they don't want you to know that Judea was run by a queen uh, in in that era. Um, But that's what she was. And therefore, they had now effectively almost taken over the whole of Syria and the whole of Judea. They controlled the whole of the east of the Roman Empire. And of course, once you start doing that, then you start rubbing shoulders Mm -hmm. with the Romans and the Romans were not exactly entirely happy about this. Um, So what the Romans started doing is they started taxing them. But they had been promised by Emperor Augustus way back in AD 10 or something that they would have the lands of Edessa tax free. Because what the Romans wanted was a buffer state between Rome and Parthia, their, their great enemy of Parthia, which is, you know, Mesopotamia. Um, they wanted a buffer state in between the two. So they said, OK, you, you protect that borderland and, and you can be tax free. Well, once the Edessans started taking over the rest of Syria and the rest of uh, Judea, the Romans wanted to tax them. And that's why the gospel story is all about a tax revolt. You know, everything in the gospel story is about taxes. You know, uh, what? why is Jesus not paying his taxes to Rome? And he says, oh, I render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, etc., etc. It's all part of a tax dispute. But, but um, I, I'm, I'm trying to put the the timeline as as Christians believe it to the timeline that that you're talking about and yes it's something doesn't make sense here because yeah. if that was the case of the taxation and is Christ one of the kings that came down or one yeah, of the he's princes King Jesus yes okay so he was already born when Romans when Rome started this taxation period. Yeah, we well spotted there. Well spotted. <laughs> we have what I call the chronological chasm, yeah. which pervades the whole of of this exploration of both the gospel story and the Arthurian story. And because the Arthurian story is the same story, mm-hmm. um, that chronological cra- chasm occurs in. Arthurian history as well. So they they end up with a problem. What they did mm-hmm. is the story was AD 70s, but the 
um, the Christians and the Romans didn't want this character associated with the Jewish revolt, which was AD 70. And so they moved his history back to the AD 30s. Convenient. Yeah. So he's no longer a great player in this, you know, Jewish revolt. He's he's just a minor carpenter, you know, back in the AD 30s. That's why nobody knows about him, etc. That's why you can't find him in the historical record. And And that was perfect. That worked well. However, anything attached to the D Jesus story mm -hmm. now has this enormous great 40-year chronological chasm right. between the two histories. And how do you overcome that? Well, Arthurian legend is, is marvelous because, as I said, you know, much, much of Arthurian legend is about Joseph of Arimathea. Yes. And he was the guy who took Jesus down from the cross. Okay, so that's AD 30s. Mm -hmm. But Joseph of Arimathea worked for Emperor Vespasian. And he was a chief knight of Emperor Vespasian, which is why I link him with um, Josephus Flavius. So Joseph Ar uh, Arimathea wasn't a merchant. He was a knight. He, yeah, according to Arthurian legend, yes. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> but how, how can he be, you know, in the AD 70s uh, working for Emperor Vespasian? So what, what they do is, is after the crucifixion of Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, Joseph of Arimathea is, is captured and he's put in prison. And he goes to sleep for three days in the prison, and he wakes up three days later by Vespasian, who wakes him up, and suddenly he realizes that 40 years have gone by, and he doesn't realize it. So are we looking at the, 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 the resurrection, the three days of... You it's know? very similar, isn't wow. it? Because Joseph yeah. Flavius had exactly the same. Joseph Flavius had a resurrection after three days as well. Uh -huh. So did Joseph of Arimathea. So did Jesus. It's part of the same story. But that's how they get over this 40-year gap. So they make Joseph of Arimathea go to sleep for three days, and he wakes up 40 years later, and now he can be working for Emperor Vespasian. Sounds like, uh, what was that, Johnny Appleseed went to sleep, woke up 40 years later. <laughs> yeah, it's My great, goodness. And remember, this is still part of Arthurian legend. This is all part of the Vulgate cycle. This is the story of um, Joseph of Arimathea. But it continually confuses the two eras. And so you never quite know what era you in you are in. Uh, for instance, the uh, one, one of the main characters owned the donkey that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. So... Uh, one of the guys who was who was the father or the uncle of uh, King Arthur owned the donkey that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. So this is like a 500-year-old donkey sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and that well. happens all the way through the story. You find that Percival uh, was the uh, nephew of Joseph of Arimathea. But that means that Percival, uh, Percival, was a first century character. Again, we, we keep muddling the first century and the Arthurian history all the way through the Vulgate cycle. And as I said before, uh, the Vulgate cycle clearly says that the history of, of King Arthur was written by um, what it calls Josephus the Good Scribe. And Josephus the Good Scribe is the son of Joseph of Arimathea, and Joseph the Good Scribe is also Joseph the Good Knight, who wrote, who was a witness to Scripture and who wrote about the Scriptures and wrote Arthurian history. All right, if... In the first century. Okay, so I have to ask you at this point, <laughs> who is or was King Arthur? 
Right. Well, I, here we come to the nub of the problem. Ah. Uh, yes. Um, King Arthur is not King Arthur. What happened is that the Knights Templar came back with all of these stories from Edessa. Mm -hmm. And as I said before, they're heretical. You know, you've got this story about a secular King Jesus who was fighting the Romans in the Jewish revolt. And uh, he survived the cross, according to Joseph um, Flavius, Josephus Flavius. He survived the cross uh, and was exiled to probably to England. We're not quite sure. Um, all of that was deeply heretical, but they wanted to preserve this story. They wanted to keep this story. And you've only got two options. Either you can sort of bury it in a pot some way. Hopefully it'll be discovered at a later era or something. Right. Or perhaps you transcribe it into a mythical story. And they've done this quite obviously with many of the children's stories we have. In my sure. books, I go through Cinderella and Rapunzel and uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and so on. They're, they're all mythical stories about real events that are dressed up as children's uh, fairy stories. All right, Ralph, we have to take our final break. <laughs> um, I don't know what to say. We'll be back on the other side as as we try... No, let me rephrase that. We'll be back on the other side when we reveal the identity of who King Arthur really is. Ralph Ellis is my special guest, www.edfu-books.uk. And we'll both be back as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. You can get the latest edition of the X Chronicles newspaper online with our compliments at www.xchroniclesnewspaper.com. Don't go away. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Ralph Ellis is our special guest, Exxon Nation, www.edfu-books.uk. And always, uh, Ralph, great having you with us. I, I love that you're out there getting the truth and, and bringing it to the people. And, you know, I, I, still, I still scratch my head every time I hear about Christopher Columbus discovering the Americas, which, which we all know he never did. But yet, academia seems to get stuck into that rut with that they don't want to admit that they were wrong. And, yes, you know, and, and thank, thank goodness for people like you and Michael Cremo and the other people who, who are willing to say, well, no, take a good look. Here is the <laughs> truth. So thank yes. you for what you do. But I have to ask you that all-important question. Who was 
King Arthur. Yeah, we, we sort of kept listeners holding there for, for a while, didn't we? No, um, let, let's but... be honest. You kept me holding for a while. <laughs> but yes, the, the answer is um, it's controversial. And as you were saying there about academia, mm -hmm. I've had as much um, anger about this uh, from academia as I have from the religious side, because really? uh, I'm, I'm reinterpreting reinterpreting re religion, of course, uh, which upsets some people, but I'm upsetting academia because mm -hmm. I'm now taking the whole of Arthurian legend, which people have been, you know, been researching deeply for a couple of hundred years, maybe, and overturning everything they've said in academia about uh, King Arthur and showing them where they've been wrong all this time. And they're very upset by it. I've, I've had some um, very nasty letters by some academics. Hmm. Um, but, you know, the truth is fairly simple. We, we've got this mythological story right. of a king that doesn't exist. And, of course, the Arthurian purists want him to exist because they want this, you know, British hero from the Dark Ages that's, you know, um, rejecting the uh, Anglo-Saxons that are coming across. So, you know, they don't want to let go of that legend and that, that hero figure. Um, but he is missing from the first 500 years. And then he suddenly arrives from the Near East with all of these strange stories about the Near East and, and, and all of these strange stories about the first century. And it just seems so obvious to me that the story that the Templars had was the secular story of King Jesus. And they couldn't tell that story in the you know the 13th century the 12th century when these stories were being written and so all they did was change his name from king jesus or king Jesus, as he's called in the historical record right. they changed his name into king arthur and all of the stories are virtually the same and this is why we have this strange oddity in in arthurian legend where king arthur is fighting against the romans because there were no romans in the in the sixth century in in europe that britain could be um fighting against there were no so, romans so, so wait a second here hold on here hold on so are we saying that the 12 knights of the round table were the 12 apostles Yes, uh, because within Arthurian legend, again, right. it's perfectly made made perfectly clear in uh, Merlin Grail by uh, Walter de Boron right. that the round table was a copy of the Last Supper table. Whoa. So the Last Supper table was a round table. Yes. So we have Jesus and the 12 disciples of the round table. And, and, yet, and, and, yet, we... and yet when you look at <laughs> when you look at the Last Supper by da Vinci, it's not a round uh, table. Yes. It's not a round table, but that's not what Arthurian legend says. Ah. So we have the round table of the Last Supper. Then we have the one made by Joseph of Arimathea, because he always likes to promote himself as being the new Jesus. So anyway, so we have this new table by Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, and then we have the Arthurian table of the 12 knights of the round table. So the 12 knights of the round table and the 12 disciples are one and the same. They are the same people. And you can go further than that because the round table is not a table, it's, it's a zodiac. The whole of this wow. history of the Nazarene church uh, and the Edessan monarchy, it all surrounds the zodiac. The, the primary thing within 
uh, Nazarene religion was was the zodiac. Okay, so and let so me ask you: Would would that mean that Lady Guinevere was Mary Magdalene? Yes, yes, um, and cow. and uh, uh, the the wise wizard, you know, Merlin. Merlin he is um, um, God. Simon, Simon, oh, Simon, Simon uh, Magus, because Simon Magus was a wizard. He is a magician, a Magus. Um, so you know that is Merlin. All of the characters fit together, except one that I can't that I can't wrap my head around with yet. And I was I was doing so good, and then all of a sudden I came to one character, and I said, "Who's this character?" And that's God, the Father. Uh, sorry, God. Yeah. Um, well, you know, God is whoever you want it to to be within Nazarene religion. It's right. an astronomical religion. Gotcha. Uh, and so it's based around the, the zodiac. So that the the god within the Nazarene religion is mm -hmm. is the Artan, the um, Helios, the sun. And so if you go to um, the Sea of Galilee, if you mm -hmm. go to Tiberias, just south by four kilometers, you come across Hamat Tiveria, uh, where we have one of the greatest of the ancient zodiacs. And it was a Nazarene. It was a Jewish zodiac. It's got all of the accoutrements of Judaism on the top of it, including the Temple of Jerusalem. So every um, every early um, Jewish temple had a zodiac on the floor, and they, they found about five or six of these already within uh, Judea and within uh, Jordan. Uh, so the central element we know within Judaism, within Nazarene Judaism was the zodiac and so the 12 knights uh, of the round table are the 12 constellations of the zodiac and similarly with the disciples the disciples uh, are the 12 constellations of the zodiac um, and that is the essence of Arthurian legend and that's get... why when you go through uh, mm -hmm. the Vulgate cycle right. most of the proper names um, are all Aramaic so you get these people uh, like these some of these uh, academics I've been arguing with trying right. to translate everything out of Welsh and not, not succeeding very well. And of course they're not succeeding because most of the names are Aramaic. Uh, okay. They are Hebrew. And it says that within the Vulgate cycle. It will say, uh, you, you know, it'll have this magical sword or something. And it, it says on the sword in the... Um, Aramaic language uh, in the Chaldean it calls it and it has this inscription in the Chaldean let me ask uh, you this now for a second here pal because time is going very fast and my I'm just I'm, I'm you know scribbling notes down here as fast as I can uh, if we're looking at the 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 12 apostles being the 12 knights who are actually the 12 signs of the zodiac have I got you am I correct so far yes okay who wrote the first four Gospels of the New Testament? Does that Jesus. mean the Does that mean the entire Bible is nothing but a great big storybook? Uh, it's a history book because history if book. you read it properly, it is real history. But only if you know it's talking about the Jewish revolt. And so the author of the Gospels, well, the author of two of them at least, was Josephus Flavius. He is the most copious author known to man you know throughout history right uh, and it's it's been known for for many many uh decades centuries that the gospel of luke and acts of the apostles have the fingerprints of josephus flavius all over them My goodness. and now we have this arthurian legend where arthurian legend is itself saying that 
Arthurian legend was written by Josephus the good scribe, who is Josephus Flavius. So now he's writing the Gospels, and he's writing the same story, because Arthurian legend is the same story, about a secular king who's called King Arthur, who is King Jesus. So he's writing the same story, but one is a, a sort of spiritual story written for a, a particular audience. And then the second story is a secular story written for another audience, written for, you know, for the Edessans, basically. Is it possible that was that, not discovered for another thousand years? Is it possible that this is the secret that the Knights Templar apparently had? Could Undoubtedly. This and and one more question: what, what about the Holy Grail? Where does ah, where does that Holy fit Grail. in? Oh, we could go on for two hours. I know we can, Grail. and time is nearly up. You do this to me all the time. Yes, <laughs> yes. The the Grail is a great part of Arthurian legend. And it's yeah. a great part of the Gospel story as well, because Saint Peter was the holder of the Grail. Uh, because Peter is not his name; his name was Simon, but he got the title Peter Kephas, which means stone, stone. He was the holder of the sacred stone. And the sacred stone is the Holy Grail. But we will need another hour to go through the whole of the Holy Grail. You know, um, uh, <laughs> how, how can we wrap this up in about 35 seconds? <laughs> um, well, only that, you know, Arthurian legend is the gospel story, but it's a secular gospel story that has been uh, half relocated into a, a, a British sort of environment but it's not it's a story about the first century it's a story about the near east um and it's the same as the gospel story they just call king jesus they call him king arthur instead just it does mean you have to lose that sort of you know british hero figure you know because he didn't really exist but that is the true story of arthurian legend ralph as always time goes by too fast my friend um do you have a book that has been written about all of this Ah, yes, that's the Grail Cipher. So, yeah, that was the, the, the last of my King Jesus trilogy. It's now a trilogy in four parts, and it's called the Grail Cipher. It's about 600 pages long, and it's magnificent. And it's available at? Uh, at food, well, I suppose uh, Amazon is probably the best. Um, and uh, on the website, I suppose, if you look there, it's uh, edfu-books.com. Ralph, take care of yourself. I've got to rush, but you'll be back shortly, and we'll continue this exciting conversation with our guest, the one and only Ralph Ellis, here on the X-Zone. Don't go away. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Hi, I'm Flo from Progressive. Being a baseball fanatic like me can be stressful. It's not all sports points and touchdowns. So Progressive is going to help you take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how they missed that goal point score, think about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive letting you choose coverage options based on your budget. Unlike your team that missed the end zone net area. Well, anyway, hope this distraction about Progressive's Name Your Price tool was helpful. It sure kept me from thinking about all those penalty balls. Yay, 
sports. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.